Hi, Mary. How are you doing? What's been going on? Yeah, good, thanks. Do you know what, Dan? I am loving the return to in-person events. I know we've spoken about it before, but I've had a, just a couple of really, really lovely experiences recently that I thought I would share. So the main one is we said goodbye to a couple of partners a couple of weeks ago, end of March. One was retiring after a, a long, successful career in our industry. And he, he'd actually been at LCP my whole career. So that was quite sort of end of an era moment. But the point is, this was like effectively all of the London investment department invited to the same drinks event and probably 80% went to this drinks event and there was just such a buzz it was just amazing mm, wow, everyone yeah. the whole day so obviously the office was busy because everyone had come in to go to these drinks afterwards so the office had a buzz and that was great and everyone was kind of collaborating through work and you know all the good stuff that working face-to-face -face in an office gets you and then then you go to the drinks and there's just this huge buzz and there are a couple of other people that had sort of left LCP that had come back so many people that you hadn't seen for ages a few of those awkward moments where you say hi nice to meet you I don't think we've met before and actually you met on teams Oof, you know, last ouch. week um, <laughs> which did happen to me with one person but yeah it was just great and afterwards for days afterwards it felt like that buzz just did not stop and the amount of people that said to me in one way or another how amazing was that isn't it great to be back to in-person events wasn't it so lovely don't we work with such great people this is why I'm at LCP. Oh, it was just amazing. So yeah, I am raring to go for the next big event, to be honest. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I mean, it feels like this return to in-person has been a bit slow, hasn't it? I mean, we've had, it still feels like we're at the start. It's been, it's been one or two on that scale that we had. Obviously, yeah, you and I did the episode at the Partner Forum, didn't we, as well? That was, what, three, I don't know, three-ish weeks ago now? Yeah. And that was one of the early days ones. Uh, I, I guess it's because there's so much of a lead time, isn't there, to organising them, that's the thing. So yeah. a few of them have been popped up. But um, yeah, I'm totally with you that, that there's just the, the vibe, the buzz, whatever it is, and the, the sense of connection and goodwill, all that sort of stuff just sort of gets triggered. So um, yeah, we were just trying to think, weren't we? There's, there's, it feels like there's going to be decent amount of that in May, hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood, et cetera. There's a few, few things lined up, I think. Yeah. And, and it feels like, um, hopefully, across the board, there is a real willingness now to do the in-person events. As you say, it started a bit slow. I think we're still going to see that if someone's got a holiday coming up, they're probably going to avoid some in-person events if they feel they can get away with it. But, you know, we're hearing about events being sort of sold out from a physical attendance perspective and that sort of thing. I, I think that's great. I really do. It, se it seems like the sort of larger scale events obviously can live with some degree of cancellations. Like if you're organizing something for 100 people, you can live with 20% of people uh, if, if you have to drop it out. Whereas the ones I've heard that are still tougher are the kind of ones where you're trying to organize something smaller for eight to 10 people and then you get some dropouts and it starts making that really, really difficult. But the big ones in, in May, we've got the PLSA conference back end of May. I guess I'll see people there. Hopefully re let us know if you're going. And also there's the there's a law deb debate, isn't there, near the start of May. So those are two big industry landmark events in May. So that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that debate is on issues of diversity and, and I think the particular issue of quotas. But I guess we'll probably be covering those sorts of issues at, at some point on an episode in the near future as well. Yeah, looking forward to it. Absolutely. Cool. Well, should we get on with this week's? Let's do it. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. 
Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Investment Uncut. This week, we are delighted to be joined by Professor Ludovic Falipu. Ludovic is a professor of financial economics at the Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Ludovic, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Ludovic. Could you give us a sense of the role that you've got with the Said Business School to start us off? So the role of a professor is to teach and to generate material, so through research. I'm also heading my academic area, which means that I need to do quite a lot of admin things, recruiting people, assigning professors to courses, listening to students' complaints. So yeah, there is quite a lot of admin, there is some research and there's some teaching. I and mean, then outside of the University of Oxford a bit, I have small consultancy and I do like keynote speaking, executive education courses, trainings, these sorts of things. Cool. And yeah, obviously, it's the research piece, I guess we're particularly going to get into later, but really keen to hear all about the students' complaints as well, what they've done <laughs> about. But why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? You would find it on my website. I'm a very keen cyclist, but that you would see on my website, but it's not on my CV. So Road big mountains. cycling expeditions? Yeah, I'm doing a race on Saturday, two days from now, which is called the Amstel Gold. It's going to be under the rain pretty brutal i expect at three degrees seven hours 250 kilometers and then this summer there will be the top du tour that i will do as well in the alps which is going to be a quite oh, wow. brutal so yeah wait lots of things. is Sorry? that the amstel gold race i mean that's a big no but not the professional race. one right. you have the amateur okay. one and the professional right. one ah, okay. tour, i do one of the stages of the tour de france but not with the professionals i do it with the yeah. amateurs and how wow. long has this cycling obsession lasted is it a lifetime it was always in the background, I think, but I spent my first 20 years of my professional life working night and days. And so only seven, eight years ago, I picked up sports and then I've been obsessed ever since. With that, a bit of running and swimming, but mostly cycling. Fantastic. You get a lot further, don't you, with cycling? Than yes, yes. You, you see more things. It's <laughs> yeah. a bit more dangerous too. So you need to be careful. True, yeah. true. Good luck in that one this weekend, did you say? Yeah, good luck in that yeah, one. Saturday, maybe, yeah. maybe hear from you afterwards. Anyway, I guess getting to the heart of the conversation, Ludovic, I would like you to try and, if you could, cast your mind back almost two years. So I think it was May, June, maybe June of 2020. The sun was just about coming out. The first lockdown was sort of just finishing. And you published what I think has turned out to be quite a transformative, quite a powerful paper. And you found yourself, I guess, at the center of a little bit of controversy, should we say, and a little bit of coverage. Is that fair, do you think? The controversy, I find it unfair. But okay. the coverage, yes, that's fair. Because I don't find it controversial. It's just facts. So facts. Mm. Cannot be controversial, can they? Got it. <laughs> We're going to dig into it. Why don't you, for the listeners who are probably maybe not familiar, why don't you give us the really quick sketch overview of what this paper covered and why it attracted the coverage that it did? I think there was a bit of a combination of things. It were probably not much news and or people were bored of the existing news. There was a combination that meant that people paid more attention than usual to it because I've been writing this for 20 years. And so it was just an update of results that I had shown before. So I've always looked into a very simple question, which is private equity fund managers receive money from pension funds and the like, right? So from investors. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how much are they taking in? How much do they give back? And how much do they charge for it? That's it. That's a simple question. The answer is difficult, but it's a very simple question. So the answer is difficult because we don't have all the data. So you need to make some assumptions, et cetera. But I've had enough actual data to see that my assumptions are usually broadly correct. And for some of the calculations, we had the hard data nowadays that we didn't have 10 years ago. And it was a bit of an update because there was a journal who was doing a special issue on private equity. And they said, can you write a piece? And I said, well, I can update you on the latest on that very basic question that I spent 20 years studying. 
And so I wrote it at the occasion of a special issue. I just said, okay, I'm going to download the latest data. I'm going to do the math and then I'm going to put it up. I think what worked as well is that I did choose a provocative title. That was a bit naughty. But yeah, I guess that's what created a bit of buzz. But the basic facts and the like is nothing that new. I had already shown these sorts of things. Provocative title, I think, is the billionaire factory. That's what you're getting at. I love it. It's great. (laughs) So Ludovic, we've talked about controversy, whether it was fair or not. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about the reaction that you had to that paper? And actually, the paper that I read, there were some reactions from the four big private equity firms. Yeah, so, sort of so for the, the first time, it's actually me who went to them and said, I'm going to cite you. I never cited any private equity firms before. My work has always been anonymous and I've always described aggregated data. But I wanted to show that even the very famous people, if you look at their track records, if you look at their numbers, they are not very impressive numbers. Of course, they will show you their IR, so like numbers that look impressive, but that's not the right measure of performance. If you look at exactly how much they took away and how much they gave back, it's not very impressive. And you will realize that they don't even tell you after all fees, which is quite striking. You go through SEC findings, they tell you they have this amazing performance, etc. They don't even tell you after fees how much they gave back, which is quite Amazing. But even if you were making an assumption as to like how much fees they must have taken, or even assuming zero fees are taken, it's already not that amazing. So it's good, but it's not like something to write home about. And so then if you add fees to that, it's not very good. So I emailed them saying, look, I'm citing you and I'm taking your numbers from SEC filings and the like. I just want to double check with you that these numbers are right, that they didn't misinterpret anything, that they didn't forget some footnotes or whatever. I couldn't find your numbers net of fees. Maybe they are somewhere. So here you have a chance to let me know. This paper is not out yet. Tell me. And I had four reactions. I had one long letter from Blackstone, which was extremely thorough and very small. I do suspect that they outsourced that work to an academic because I did give a seminar later on where I got a very hard time by someone who knew the paper extremely well and was like using all the arguments <laughs> that were in the Blackstone letter. So it's possible they outsourced it. But in any case, they took it seriously, wrote back in a very constructive way, in a smart way. So the Blackstone reaction was interesting. And that's why I felt, well, do you mind if I just publish it? The other team, because I think people would like to hear how you reacted and your, your view. And the other three, not quite so. There were some like what were like more than cowboy-like. It was like, just take this out or we sue you. And you're like, what do you mean? These are your numbers from SEC filings. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? There was one that was quite ridiculous, which was, the performance that was shown was the performance, gross of management fees, and gross of carried interest. And so I had just taken out the 20% carried interest because what I know how much it is, roughly, it's usually 20. So I had taken a 20% and they said, oh, but you took 20% of carry and that's a stupid mistake because, of course, we take the carry after the management fees. And so the carry is less than the number you have taken. And I said, yes, because I assume your management fees were zero to do this calculation. If you want, I can assume your normal management fees and your performance would end up being lower than the number I'm showing. So because I didn't know your management fee, I assume it's zero and take a carried interest on the gross number. And then they re- made back saying, no, no, no. OK, fine. Just leave it like it is. So they, <laughs> it was really, really stupid. The other big three, it was, it was a mixed reaction. So I posted their thing as well. So for people to judge how deep their reaction was, this was for the four. Then the rest of the GPs and so on, they didn't really react. The, the lobby arm in the US did post something on their website pretty quickly, just saying, we don't like this, it's not true, here is our propaganda, our way of seeing things, and you see it's, everything is good. And then there was one person, it's the largest investor in the world, called Hamilton Lane, which then had a pretty nasty reaction, which is, didn't go on the facts, but 
nicknamed me and ridiculed me in their annual letters to their investors, which goes to about every single investor in private equity. And it was defamatory. They accused me of being available for hire or implied that I was available for hire, that I changed the numbers to suit my conclusions and so on and so forth, but didn't use my name, but did something that was pretty close. So instead of Professor Ludo, I was Professor Pluto and Pluto ad hoc, which is actually in itself also an insult, etc. So I did look into defamation and to sue them, but it turns out that it is pretty difficult when you are a small guy and you're being under attack by a big guy. I saw some of the back of some of the stuff with Hamilton Lane. It seemed like it did get kind of nasty, didn't it? But going back to one big thing, then I think what you're saying is different was you were naming specific private equity firms here and talking about their publicly available data. And that seems to have generated a lot more coverage, pushback, noise around it for better and worse, obviously. But I guess that was a big difference. That's right, because usually we show aggregate statistics and people say, oh, it depends how they calculate things. We don't know what went into the data. It's black box. And here I say, look, it's SEC filings. This is how KKR show their members. Look, first of all, every year they show you the same return on their first page, which is quite amusing, if you find that amusing. And if you look at the actual number on their table, et cetera, how much money they took out and how much money they gave back, it's not bad, but it has nothing to do with the numbers they flash on the first page and what they brag about. Reading your full paper you sort of got the feeling that you'd heard all of the kickbacks before because you were you were yeah, quite carefully crafting the, yeah. <laughs> the arguments around, well, I can take out 2006 or I can include 2006 and I can look at pre and post and any combination I look at, we're going to get the same answers. So it was quite clear that you'd had some of those comments before. Aside from the sort of public outrage, if you like, or the debate that was happening publicly, have you seen any positive progress following the paper? There is this frustration that you do all this work for, for, I've been doing this for 20 years, and you never quite have like a concrete demonstration of a direct impact. But I guess you put seeds into people's mind. You do influence conversations. People have read, like this paper was downloaded 25,000 times, circulated. Each person downloading it probably sent it to four or five people. I know from all the ones who works in private equity, they've read the paper. So you plant the seeds. Like people know that there is a way to look at the data that leads to a different conclusion. And so you never know who you influenced. Where it is most direct is that the re- most recent SEC proposal for regulation of private markets, which is fairly extensive, was in the news just last month, 30 pages plus of explaining what was the issue, why they should regulate, etc. cited my work in many, many places and followed very much what I had proposed. And I talked directly to the SEC before I wrote this document about what I would do and so on. So they read this paper and that influences of that tone, their mindset, et cetera. So you have no, I don't have a direct evidence of impact, but you have all these indirect evidence that, that you have some people reviewing their strategies, the way CalPERS think about private equity internally. You can see bits and pieces in different institutions that you know are influenced by them checking out this paper and others. I mean, being quoted by the SEC, that's pretty big. That feels pretty big. Yeah, it was, it was like every other page, is, it was a different piece of work of mine. So that was pretty cool. That's real change. So congratulations on that. That's brilliant. Well, that's the great. SEC hasn't implemented their change yet. Right. The other countries right. are not it's following suit, apparently. And we're not. Yeah. It's interesting just from my perspective, thinking about my own experiences. I've been sort of in the industry consulting for sort of 20 years. I had heard a lot of those arguments before, but for some reason, I engaged a lot more with your paper and it really galvanized me a lot more to think about it. And I do think there was something in the fact that normally you see this aggregated data and it's the aggregation just takes something away from the story. It just feels less tangible somehow, like it's some big mix of stuff and you just don't 
identify with it. Whereas I think the specific names and also the way you laid out so clearly at the top level at the start, some of the numbers, big picture, I don't know, it resonated certainly with me in a way that the same arguments hadn't for the previous 20 years, I guess. So there was something there, I think. Thank you. Well, let's dig into some of those details because I really want to talk about the IRR thing. That was one of the bigger points. But one of the bits I wanted to pick up quickly, actually, was just the intro. And I guess any listeners want a quick skim, I would recommend you just read the introduction because it's sort of one page, isn't it? And you kind of set out this argument for how effectively there's basically 200 billion of equity, of underlying equity value in the private equity market. It costs effectively 100 billion to put that 200 billion to work through fees, through consultants, through lawyers, all sorts of different stuff, the cost of debt, everything. And so straight away, there's a huge mountain to climb, I guess you could say, and a lot of money that's escaping there to a very small group of people. So it's an extremely expensive way of deploying capital. I mean, intuitively, if you are going to invest in a building, if you buy a building and you're going to start up bringing in consultants and so on, paying all the transaction costs in the building and you plan to hold it just for three years and then you're going to sell it after three years, this is an expensive way of investing. And you buy an entire building, you need to do due diligence on the building, you need to check every single water pipes, etc. It's expensive. And so when you buy a $1 billion company, $10 billion company, there are lots of things to check. And so lots of people are working and they are working at a pretty high fee. And so just to hold it for three years or four, it's a huge, huge cost. And all the debt you're taking, I mean, the leverage loan market, there are lots of participants there because it's very profitable. Any lending is at three, four percent origination cost and the like. It's large amounts of money. Sorry, let me just apologize quickly because that was one of those horrible situations where I didn't ask a question. I just made a long statement trying to basically show off <laughs> how much I'd read the paper, which is something I always try not to do. So I've just committed the one thing that I try not to do in these podcasts. But anyway, you dealt with it very gamely. I'll let Mary take over. <laughs> so read the intro, people. Let's talk IRR and let's start with jargon busting. So if you could explain to the listeners what IRR is and then explain why, I guess, what is wrong with using IRR as a measure of performance and how is it misused? So basically... The sad truth is that when you have a non-continuously traded asset, you cannot talk about rates of returns. So I'm pretty sure that in the Middle Ages, I was not around, but nobody was talking about the rate of return. People were talking about, I'm doubling my money every four years, I'm doubling my money every eight years, something like that. Because of the stock market, we got used to continuously compounding. And so we have a daily return, which we can compound monthly, yearly. And there are still mistakes made there, even for major indices like the S&P 500, about where you assume the dividends went in, what happened to the dividends in terms of reinvestments, etc. So even for publicly traded stocks, continuously traded assets, the rate of return is not as trivial as people think it is, but it is pretty close. It's fine. Okay, We can do a rate of return when it's continuously traded. Anything else, you cannot talk about the rate of return. But people are obsessed. They want to know, is it 4% or 6% I'm getting a year? And we cannot give a number. So to give a simple example, imagine you buy a house for one million. Three years later, you spend a million of repair. Two years after that, you sell it for three million. What is your rate of return on this house? Don't know. Don't know how to calculate it. You can calculate the rate of return only if you have one investment, one divestment. If you tell me I bought this house for one million, I sold it for three million. Five years later, I can tell you your rate of return. I can annualize that number. If there is any intermediate cash flow, I'm toast. I cannot tell you. So then because people want to know a rate of return, then you have to make some assumptions. So IR is going to make an assumption. So what is the assumption IR is making? IR is going to be a very complex thing to solve. You can never do it by hand. It's a computer that solves it. And what it is is that it says, okay, take all the intermediate cash flows, compound them to the end date at a rate that you call 
x. So then you bring all these intermediate cash flows to the end, and now you have two cash flows. So now you can calculate the rate of return because you have your initial cash flow, and then you have your end cash flow, but your end cash flow is a function of x. Like all yeah. these guys who got and in a complex way because you have one plucked x to the power five of the guys who are here five years, et cetera, et cetera. It's a fairly complex expression, polynomial of x's at the end. So now you have a first cash flow and the last cash flow, the last cash flow being a function of x. And you can calculate the rate of return doing the usual thing, which is take the last cash flow, divide by the first initial cash flow, and then annualize that number. That will give you a rate of return, let's say, y. Now, y is a function of x. So you have two unknowns here in one equation. It's not solvable. So what does IR does? It says, how about I assume that x is equals to y, and then now I have only one unknown in one equation. What is x? And x is going to be the IR. So basically, what that does is that you are going to assume that all the intermediate cash flows are reinvested at the rate of the IR. So when the IR is negative, you've lost money on the investment. You assume that every year, what was given to you, you burnt it every year. So if you hold an investment for 20 years and you've lost money, every intermediate distribution, you assume that you have burned some of it every year. Every year, continuously, you burn some of it, which is a crazy assumption. That's stupid. Now, people know it's stupid. And if you take any brochure of private equity, you will look at the list of their investments. And absolutely every single time that you see an investment that has lost money, in the column for IR, is written non-meaningful every single time. You will never see a negative IR. And they are right. It is non-meaningful because an IR that is negative is a stupid one because it makes a stupid assumption. But the flip side of that is that any IR above 15% is equally non-meaningful because it is impossible that you have reinvested anything above 15%. But that IR is always shown. <laughs> right. So basically, if you have an IR, which is anywhere between 2-3% and 12-14%, it's cool. It gives you a ballpark idea of what the number of the return is. So if you look at the return of CalPERS, since inception, IR is about 11% in private equity. That's roughly what they got. If you were to compare it to public equity, 11% is where they are. And if you look at how much money multiple they got, it's 1.5 times, a bit less, 1.5 times. And indeed, if you hold things for four years at 11%, you multiply your money by 1.5. So that makes sense. But if you take a KKR where they tell you that the IR is at 26%, that doesn't exist. And so yeah. that means that everything they distributed in 1976 is supposed to have grown at 26% a year. Now, at 26% a year is like you double your money every three years or so. You get a gigantic amount of money extremely quickly, which means but you are supposed to have made so much money with the reinvested dividends in the early years of KKR, but no matter what they do now, it doesn't change anything to their returns. Mm -hmm. And this is why one thing that I show is that KKR since 2006, that they published this number officially, I know their number since the 90s, it's still the same, but since 2006, the public number, it's always the same, it's 26%. Every single CC findings the last, the last 16 years is, 26%. I mean, even Bernard Madoff would be like amazed at such a thing. This is incredible. Except they're not cheating. Madoff was cheating. KKR is not cheating. They're just using a stupid way of measuring returns, which everybody is very happy with. But it's a very stupid way and very misleading. You take somebody like Apollo and the 40% return. I mean, compound anything at 40% for 25 years, you'll have some fun looking at the end number. It's ridiculous. You would start with 100 million at 40% over 20 years, you have a GDP of the US. It's ridiculous. So that's the issue 
we don't know how to calculate the rate of return. There will be some ways if you need to make an assumption. There are some assumptions that will make more sense than the one that IR is making. In most life situations, the assumptions that IR is making are not completely crazy. But when you know the problems with IR, you can also, in private equity, time your cash flows in a way, but then you play on the weaknesses of the IR and then you just explode it. So for example, what you do is that you're going to try to have a credit line to move away from the starting date, the negative cash flows. You're going to try to exit your winners very quickly in order to have a first big positive cash flows. And then your losers, it doesn't matter how when you realize them. So if you know that the IR has this weakness, you're going to try to have a very big cash flow early on by exiting your winner. So you make 10 investments. One of them is bound to have one quite a bit after one or two years. You exit that one, you hold on with the rest, and you will have an amazing IR. And so that makes it a completely stupid measure in most situations because it's so easy to gain. And then people compare it to a rate of return with public markets and say, all these guys from public yeah. markets are complete dummies. Warren Buffett has 18% IR over 40 years. He's one of the richest guys on the planet thanks to his investments. And he's at 18%. 18%, if you watch any private equity presentations, is barely the median guy. <laughs> it's like everybody in private equity has more return than Warren Buffett. Except I don't see any one of them with as much money, but... And that's yeah, the key point, isn't it? Sorry, Dan. Yeah, this really struck me when I read the paper. And I think I'd always... I'm a qualified actuary, so in the back of my mind, I'd always had this idea that IRR was a bit different. There was something weird about it, but it was basically fine kind of thing was probably how I saw it. It's probably how a lot of but people it's see it. It's how it's written like, in all of finance textbooks. Yeah, it's got these weird thing in it about it. It's cash flow, something about that. But basically, wave your hands. We can use it as a return. And for the first time when I was reading your paper, I was like, oh, actually, maybe that's not such a great assumption. And the point you made about all the firms having these since inception IRRs of like 26 was quite striking. If I sat down with a spreadsheet, it must have been bored that month or something. When I sat down with a spreadsheet, I was like, you know what? Let's see if I can try and reproduce this effect because I wasn't quite sure if I believed it basically but I wanted to see it with my own eyes it took me like five minutes or maybe even less than that like three minutes it's super easy to create yeah. this sticky since inception IRR where you say founded the firm in 1970 you get a big cash flow back the next year and then whatever you do for the next 40 years you exactly have doesn't matter inception IRR. I, think, I thought I was going to have a whole afternoon of playing with spreadsheets if it like, was done in like three minutes and I suppose the tricky thing, of course, is when you then try to compare that to something else that's measured in a different way, as you say, Ludovic, so comparing it to public markets. I mean, do you have thoughts on how should investors think about public versus private when there is this huge issue with the way you measure performance? At least they should try to do a PME, which is basically a net present value. Now, the problem is that people like Hamilton and the like, they call things PME, but it's actually a spread of IRs. So we need to be careful because now... It's funny, it's like you say, okay, no, we have a better way, it's called PME, and people say, oh, okay, so I'm going to take my screwed way, and I'm going to call it PME, and so I'm cool. It's like, no, <laughs> you, you're, not supposed, you're not supposed to like take the right name and put it on the wrong thing and then say that you're fine. This is not how it works. So yeah, calculating net present values and taking ratios of them, like the PME is a better approach. I show that in the paper. You need to change a bit the benchmarks. You need to know a bit about your benchmarks, because people tend to assume that there is like one such thing as like stock market return. And there isn't. It depends on the sub-time period you're looking at. There are very different indices. And even in the same space, I had this back and forth recently with a senior academic in my field that disagrees strongly with me. This one was vocal about it. And so one thing he said was like, I don't understand your problem. You keep on telling me that practically invest in small and mid cap. And so I should compare it to that. But I've used the Russell 2000 and I have the same results. So what is your problem? Okay. 
And the problem was that they said, look, the Russell 2000 is the worst performing mid-cap index by miles in the 90s and the 2000s. And you take any other ones like the S&P 600 or 400, it is something like that, you will have a different answer. And the guy goes like, this is stupid. Like you are just fishing for indices that do better than my Russell 2000. Everybody's using the Russell 2000. So you're the one doing data snooping. I'm the innocent one. I picked the Russell 2000 and it works fine with it. So you're the one fishing for something else. And my answer is, the reason why everybody's using the Russell 2000 as a benchmark is precisely because it's the worst performing index. It was designed to underperform in order for people to buy it for benchmarking. That's by design. So even if you take the same space, like small cap, mid cap, US stock market, even there, you will have different benchmarks with very different numbers. So even if you adopt the right method, like the PME, you would have to be still pretty well informed about the different indices to use and not to use. And same like if you do Europe, private equity in Europe has done much better than public equity Europe. It doesn't take too long or too much knowledge to know that in Europe, what is publicly listed is 15% of the European market cap is Switzerland. In private equity, Switzerland is 1%. doesn't exist. In public equity, it's 15% of the European stock market. You take oil and gas, food companies, it's 20% of the European stock market. There's hardly any of that in the private equity. Private equity is all tech and healthcare. So you're comparing sectors that are completely different, geographies that are completely different, and then you end up with, you say, oh, one is much better than the other, but you compare the apples and potatoes. So in the US, where the public market is more mixed, you can relatively safely say, okay, here's the US stock market index, and I compare it to the US private equity. There you're okay. But if you yeah. start like bringing in like Europe and the rest of the world and so on, like very quickly, it's messy. So you need to have the right method, PME, but also the right benchmark and knowledge of public markets to do a clean job. And that's always one of the, I mean, of course, one of the age-old arguments for going into private equity is high returns. And we've talked about that quite a lot. Another reason that I've often heard cited is effectively what you just described in the European markets, which is it gives you access to different parts of the market that you might not have access to publicly, which maybe is, I don't know how smooth that segue is, but maybe is a nice way of then opening a question to you, Ludovic, on what is your actual view on whether private equity is a good place to invest or not? I mean, performance yeah, measurement aside. I can give you. The smartest investor I know in private equity is Oxford Endowment and Jack Edmondson as a deputy CIO comes to my class and explains why they invest in private equity and how they do it. And I think he makes complete sense. And so that to say that I have heard rationales for investing in private equity and ways to invest in private equity, which I think make complete sense. More often than not, I've just heard the rationale of I need more return. So I invest in private equity since it is illiquid and quite complex. I'm going to get rich. I'm not sure it's how it works <laughs> because I can give you lots of things that are complex and illiquid and crap, and I'm not sure it's going to work. You do have some proper rationale. So if somebody would tell me, in Europe, I want an exposure to this and that sector, and I do it with this and that private equity fund because this is what they do, then I'm cool about it. But if you tell me you invest in Europe in a large private equity fund that invests typically in, I don't know, like hotels and food companies and the like, I'm not quite sure we'll see the point. Similarly, for outside, like in developing markets, everything is private markets. So if you want to have an exposure to China, to Africa, etc., you have only private equity as a route. So all of these are rationales that make sense. You would still have an issue with the governance model. The way Oxford solves it is that they focus on smaller funds, a bit like Yale, and use the fact that Oxford University is a very prestigious and respected investor to dictate the terms to the fund managers, to good fund managers, because they're Oxford University and these people know that there will be a stamp of approval that is serious 
for their fund. And so it was very much the same strategy as Yale Endowment. Yale has never invested with the big names in private equity on the basis that the incentives were not aligned and these people were not bringing particular diversification, et cetera. And Yale has always invested in smaller funds, giving them sharp incentives and writing the contracts with them and using their network. So they had a unique position as well. We can see very clearly there that what you're pushing back on is some of the lazy thinking that support that directs money into private equity, the sort of it's a liquid, therefore it must give higher returns. Yeah, I'm a and teacher, al- I cannot help, but... But also pushing back on some of the so-called conventional wisdom, which often flows from these misinformed comparisons that get made, then it becomes a conventional wisdom, then it just kind of gets done the whole time, and it yeah. becomes very hard to overturn. As you said, you found it's difficult to challenge those sort of conventional wisdoms, even if they do rest on slightly dodgy foundations. Yeah, especially when you don't have like an ideal replacement. So if you have yeah. an ideal replacement, you're done. But if the answer is you can actually not really measure a rate of return, so just like give up on it and people say, I don't want to give up on that. So I'm going to just continue doing it the wrong way. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. Well, one of the solutions you suggested actually just quickly was just looking at the multiple of money, wasn't it? Which in some ways is simpler than a rate of return. So it's like 1.5, I got 1.5 times my money sort yeah. of thing, which actually is a nice solution in some there, ways because anyone can There are ways that. to trick that one yeah. as well. It hasn't been done much in practice. But probably because people don't pay much attention to it. I'm sure the day yeah. that people stop using IR and if it ever happens and start using money multiple, we will see the tricks going into money multiple yeah. to pump it up as well. But currently, a money multiple is quite fair. I would say just quickly, actually, we don't do a lot of private equity. We do a bit of private debt. And I do see on most of the private debt stuff that I see, they do report multiple as well as IRR, which is kind of nice to see they're at least reporting it. Ludovic, we've not got long left and I'm really keen to hear, I suppose either side of this question. So is there any other interesting stuff that you're working on at the moment or sort of projects that you have been involved in where you think that the market is misunderstanding something about the way the market operates, the way it's reported, that sort of thing? I can tell you what I've been doing today. So I've been working on this for three years. We analyze Glassdoor data to understand how employees feel with when they are subject to a leverage buyout transaction and what kind of complaints they do. So we do like some textual analysis on the reviews that people write. We have tens of thousands of reviews of people who have gone through an LBO as an employee and explain what is it they like, dislike, etc. And we work out what are the major themes. We see, for example, that people typically have an issue with the way senior management behave in a leverage buyout, the fact that they are the have and they are the have not. But they do acknowledge that operationally things are working better compared to other companies. So that's the sorts of things I'm working on. I also identify some GPs that seem to be treating their employees differently than others. So there are some good ones and bad ones, apparently. It makes a difference. Who is the GP? It makes a difference what the sector is and so on. So I'm quite interested in looking at these issues of welfare of employees and consumers and so on and so forth in private equity-held companies. That's one thing I'm doing. Another project I've worked on, which I think is pretty cool, which also involves textual analysis, but we created an index of private equity firms We basically look at all the press releases in the world by publicly traded companies, and we look at the ones who who have their names mentioned next to private equity in the press release. And from that, we automatically detect who's in the business of private equity and is publicly listed. And from that, we create an index which where the weights are not based on how much of a market cap someone is, but how closely related to private equity they are. So for example, in that index, you would have Blackstone having the same weight as a KKR, even though the market cap of Blackstone is like five times KKR. And the reason for that is that Blackstone is actually huge in hedge funds, it's huge in real estate, etc. And so then the anti-market cap is not really private equity. And you would have someone who's mentioned quite often in private equity contexts like BlackRock, which is publicly listed, but it's not very often mentioned in context of private equity compared to other contexts. And so BlackRock doesn't make it to the index. And so we have this index, which also has like a smart liquidity management 
aspect to it, which can then mimic the underlying returns of private equity funds. And we find that the correlation with things like the Cambridge Associates private equity index is very high. The returns are the exact same. So I've had 12% return average on this index since 2008, since I could be constructed with high correlation with private equity fund returns. My big regret there is that I developed it in partnership with JP Morgan and they had an embargo on it. They put it on for their clients on Bloomberg, but there was an embargo on the thing. And since I wrote the paper and it was 18 months ago, so right after my billionaire paper, that was the next one, my index was up like 80%. And then nobody could see that because it was in the embargo. And so now I'm coming <laughs> out with a paper. I'm like, the last 18 months, I'm up 80%. And then nobody believes me that it was an excellent thing. But it's exposed. But I said, look, it's very good. That is pretty cool because it's something a bit technical. There is some innovation in the liquidity management of that index as well. It's a pretty smartly designed index, which is something I also feel strongly about. I find a lot of passive investing to be a bit stupid, not thorough enough, a bit lazy thinking, like Dan would say. And so that's something else I'm working on and I'm very excited about. And it's again based on textual analysis quite a bit. Um, yeah. Cool. So is that something the embargo is lifting soon? So we'll see that. Yeah, no, it's, it's publicly available. It's called Thematic Investing, the case of right. private equities on my website. It's out there. Fantastic. We'll link to that in the show notes for sure. Ludovic, as we wrap up today's episode, what's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from this? I'm not sure. I would like to think that there's not just one thing, but (laughs) it's like a classic prof thing. I cannot boil it down to one thing. Be very careful to all the marketing of private markets. You don't have protections of regulators. The regulators in public markets, like for mutual funds, spend 100 years since like the Investment Act of 1940. Years after years, always added rules as they saw more and more. There was a new trick in the marketing of mutual funds and the like. Marketing people can have a wide imagination and when you have no protection from regulator about how you present a track record, what is it you can say, how you can calculate things and not, and so on, you need to be extremely skeptical about any marketing brochure. And so my own bias then is like, be educated as much as you can. And if you want solutions for that, I have online courses, I have a book, I have all kinds of things. So inform yourself, listen to the podcast like the ones you guys are running, read books, watch some videos, etc. Be careful of what you receive for free as information by marketing people. Got it. Be skeptical of marketing that comes across pretty strong. We'll link to all your books and your courses and stuff in the show notes for sure. People want to check them out. I might know what you might say to this next question, but what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about sort of private markets and investing? Underappreciated or overrated? Yeah, because it is the same, I guess, the flip side. So what people underappreciate is the element of luck in investing. Mm. We tend to think of people very quickly as heroes. And so then The corollary of that is also that if somebody has made a lot of money, this person must be necessarily extremely clever and the like. Well, this person is usually hardworking most of the time, probably a bit clever, but luck played usually a huge role. And what also plays a huge role usually is that someone found a loophole. So there were things that shouldn't have been quite legal and then it was borderline, it was gray, and the person went in it and got lucky that they didn't get caught or whatever, and they made it. So the element of luck with the corollary of the loophole type of thing, I think, We need to bear that a lot more in mind and not to equalize somebody made a lot of money. Therefore, this person is like super smart. I think it's what is overrated, but it's the opposite of that is what is underappreciated. Absolutely. And very quickly, Ludovic, any recommendations for the listeners? Books, TV shows, podcasts, anything like that? Your podcast, TV shows, I'm not sure. I know of any good ones. There are a few people on social media that post interesting things like Dan and others. There's tons out there. I have my own stuff, so I'm biased towards it. But Don't worry, we'll link to your social profiles. And I'm flattered to hear that you read my stuff as well. So we'll put some stuff on there every now and then. 
Brilliant. Well, I think we're out of time. You've been really generous with your time today, Ludovic. Thank you so much. It's been a really good conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, both of you. Thanks, Ludovic. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut, but join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.